and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Echo Chamber podcast with me, Mark Chappell. Today, I'm going to be talking to John Patrick Morgan. John Patrick is a coach, he's a philosopher and a teacher. In this discussion, we discuss about how he got into coaching, how he came up with his own personal philosophy, which he now shares with his clients. We talk about what is the self in self-development. We talk about the difference between metaphorical and absolute truth. We discuss myth and paradox. And we talk about the differences between money, morality and value in terms of coaching. During this conversation, we do go down a few little divergent streets, which I really enjoyed doing with JP. And I'm afraid the audio has suffered a little bit due to the internet connection. It will sound like at points we're sucked off into the matrix and there may be parts where the audio does skip. I don't think it detracts too much, but my apologies. Anyway, enough waffle from me. Let's get on with it. Right. Okay. I'm joined here by John Patrick Morgan. Thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. Are you okay if I just call you JP? Is that okay? Yeah, you call me JP. Okay, cool. Uh, for the people who don't know you, can you, this is such an expansive question, but can you tell me the, the story of how you came to be a coach and a teacher and a philosopher? What's the yeah. potted history of that? It's actually a fun story I like to tell because it's kind of, I don't know, I've just been realizing the further I get down this path, the more I realize the story right? It's like, it starts to make sense. I can see it easier in, in hindsight. Uh, and one thing that's really clear is that I ended up a co- as a coach because I was into magic. You know, like there's the professional side of it too. I've always been an entrepreneur. I had a couple of businesses. There's that backstory. Um, I was traveling the world, living nomadically. And then I settled in London and got an entrepreneur visa. But the really, on the other side of having this ex- experience and mild success as an entrepreneur, there was this interest in magic tricks, magic performance. First, I got into David Blaine doing card tricks for people in the street when I was in my 20s. And then when I started traveling the world and then it landed in London, I started getting more psychological magic. So you being in the UK, you'll know Darren Brown. Mm-hmm. So I was studying with a lot of the same people he studied with. And I, was, and I got into performing you know, little gigs at restaurants, little stage shows. I was performing in Covent Garden. And it was like, I was so fascinated with how I could use my communication to create an experience of awe in another person. I got into street hypnosis. I, got, I was so fascinated with how I could use my communication to have a person's subconscious mind engage them in behaviors that they felt like they weren't doing that was just happening outside of their control. I was just enamored with this. It was, it, was, it was exciting to me. And then finally, at some point, all of that ability to use language and communication to influence somebody's mind started to turn back on myself and be like, well, I can use this to influence my own mind. And it's not just about having fun experience or being entertained. I can actually use it to be more productive in my work, to you know, get out and go for a run, to improve my relationship with my girlfriend. Wow. And then I could start to help other people, not just to you know, have a fun experience, but start to grow and change in their life. And so my experience as an entrepreneur and this ability to use my communication to create an experience in another person that changed their behaviors and then their results kind of came together when I discovered the world of coaching. And that was about 11 years ago. So I started doing little workshops in London, you know, on just like productivity, living a life of passion, relationships. And after a couple of years, it became my full-time gig. So I've been doing it almost 10 years now, full-time. And, uh, and over that period of time, I've worked with hundreds of people, had conversations with probably over a thousand, I'm, I'm not counting, but I have just been trying to help people to have what they want and live, what they, live a life that they want in the way that I would do it. So it's not like I, I took a system and here's what the system says and now you do that, but how do I do it? And I look at every possible system. You talked earlier about a few different things, like different systems, like yeah, I studied NLP, I studied hypnosis, I studied three principles, I studied clean language, I studied, I could go on and on about different modalities and things that I'd go into. And I use the metaphor as like, um, I don't get in the box and close the lid. I get in the box, so I can actually be in it, but I keep the little bit, right? Like I'm, I'm, there's a point which I'm going to get out. And so, but that allows me to immerse myself and to learn the thing and then, but have it as part of my tools and, and, and use it in my life, right? I never coach anybody from an idea that's out there. I only coach them from something that I've used that's worked for me. And so every day I'm working on myself and trying to grow myself consciously, right? And, and try to be my best with my family and my business. 
in my community. Uh, and then I just help people from that place. And so what's happened over the last 10 years of just doing that on, not unconsciously, but without trying to create some kind of system or my own philosophy, one has emerged. There's just a, um, it's just kind of coagulated. Like I've taken bits and pieces from different places and different ways of seeing and different pieces of language and come up and that's come together in some of my own language. And it's kind of cobbled this coherent philosophy. And the reason I, how I discovered that was I've been coaching for years, but in the past, like a few years ago, people started saying to me, can you teach me more about that? And that was kind of a new thing. People didn't used to ask me to teach them. They would ask me to coach them, but I started hearing this. Can you teach me more about that? And so it was being reflected back to me that there was something in me that was coherent, that was useful, that I was operating within, but I wasn't really that co like totally conscious of. And it took having conversations with a couple of my clients who are experts at what they do and branding and marketing and, 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 and creating like courses and things like that to be like, oh, wow, there is a thing here. Being able to name it, start teaching it. So uh, a couple of years ago, I started teaching and I started my creating school about 15 months ago, which is a place where I'm now consciously intentionally teaching what I call the creating perspective. And the reason I use the word perspective, I actually, that's a... Um, I got that from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He talks about the cosmic perspective in his book. Uh, I think it's like astrophysics for people in a hurry or something like that. But he talks mm -hmm. about the value of having the cosmic perspective is that it gives you a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of possibility. And he's not saying it's the truth. He's saying it's a perspective, but taking that perspective on creates something for you. It gives you access to something. And so it's a, it's a philosophy. It's a way of seeing, but I'm standing here right now saying it's not the truth. I don't know what the truth is or if there even is one. If there, I certainly don't know it if there is one. But this is a perspective that if you were to take this on and live your life through it, you'll have more freedom, you'll have more love, both inwardly and outwardly, and you'll have more power, which means more ability to make a difference in shorter, shorter and shorter amounts of time, which then creates material results through that. And so that's what I help people do. Uh, and I help them through teaching now at a distance, but also through coaching still and in conversation. I love that. And I, I know you come with tremendous respect and reputation. I know people who've worked with you and I know people uh, greatly benefit from your insights. And what as we said before in like the little pre-chat that you don't, I've never got a sense that you push a spin system. It's, it's a very personal insight driven and you share and you teach. And mm. I love what you said about something that's quite important to me actually is the idea of metaphorical truth and absolute truth so mm. something may not be truth all the time in fact you know if you look mm -hmm. at science everyone says no one believes that anything's 100 percent true until it's right. disproven but we're moving away from truth to what is helpful mm -hmm. and is it more helpful for me to come from a more creative loving productive yes. space rather than being bogged down in the truth um and i i think that's a really nice distinction when I contacted you, I wanted to talk about creating the self, self-creation. And I, I see you as the, the go-to person from, for this kind of work. So I'm going to ask a few kind of expansive questions. I love that. When we talk, yeah, when we talk about the self mm. and when we talk about self-development or self-improvement, what self are we referring to, in your opinion? Yeah, I think we have, in, there's different selves that people refer to in that. Um, another way we say, who are you, you know, being who you are, like being, there's different, different uses of the word being too. Um, but let's go back to self. So when I use the word self, most of the time, pretty much all the time, what, I'm, what I mean is a, an identity. Not, so and when I say identity, it's, also, it's not just who I think I am. It's what I think the world is. What I think is, is. What I think is, right? Like everything all the concepts that I hold, not even, even, even before language, all the con conceptualizations about reality that I hold is the self. And it's this thing that starts being created probably before you're even born, right? And, and then it's, it's just patterns. They're neurological patterns. It's the form aspect of what I am, right? It's the who, the who-ness. Mm. And, and, uh, and that thing is created 99.9% out of our awareness throughout our whole life. <clears throat> and all I'm trying to do is bring it down to 99.8% by bringing in like just a 10th of a percent of consciousness to that 
ongoing constant process. Um, if I can just, just a couple degrees one way or the other way, like a little bit towards love, a little bit towards more impact in the world, a little bit towards more freedom, then I get to have an experience of life that's, that's more of that. And so, and I think we, we, we experience the world through the self. We can't not. Mm. I think that we can pretend that we are through mindfulness practices where we become disassociated from the process of thinking in language. But I think what we're actually doing is just moving around away from that one component of the self that there's, you're still expressing the witness. Um, so there's always, you're always entangled in it to some degree. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I think the self is. Cool. It sounds like it's quite a, a heavy non-dual idea yeah the sense which i'm a great fan of myself and mm. i totally agree with you i think sometimes meditation can take the form of a self-deception but there's always mm. if you know what's going on if you're aware of no self there is a self-witnessing the idea of no self yes. so it's yeah. it's a, it's a weird paradox and i think if there is anything that is true it's probably always lying in a paradox is what i, I seem to get. yeah i think so I, I think there's something to be said for the experience that's transcendent of self mm. but the moment you bring language to it it slices and dices it you know there's there's no word that you can use to explain to describe the experience transcendent of self which doesn't selfify it in some other word which doesn't thingify it all they can do is point to it. Like Eckhart Tolle says, it's like words are signposts. They're never, it's not like the sign on the thing. It's a direction towards it. Mm. Once you label it, you've killed it. I think often that's why a lot of you see this kind of spiritual uh, non-duality expressed in poetry. Because yeah. the, the words, the, the direct language just doesn't do it justice. And of course, everything you're doing to escape conditioning, you're trying to express by a conditioned language exactly. so it's yeah. like i think it's alan watts who says like your teeth trying to bite themselves it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind how did you go about creating yourself what were, what were the key sort of 101 things that you realized on your journey well the most important thing that's been there since i was a kid is self-honesty like i think it came from this is just my self-analysis based on like looking back at my life you know, my dad was a cop. And so like good guys told the truth, bad guys went to jail. And it's like being honest was like the most important thing in my house. If I did something I wasn't supposed to do, I might get grounded for a day. But if I lied about it, it'd be like a month. Right. And so I was like, it was like fear driven honesty. Mm. And, you know, and so like, um, it was just so that, you know, fear driven, but it also became, it was a big value. It was a, it was a strong value. And so honesty with people, um, became self-referential too, like being honest with myself. I couldn't sleep at night if I was something that I felt like I'd lied or wasn't being honest about. Whether that was, you know, I said I did something but didn't, or there was something in my heart to speak that I hadn't spoken. And I've just always had that. And so because I have had a, a, an, an inability to sit with something that wasn't true, I've constantly been like moving in the direction of What's most true for me? What's most true for me? What's most true for me? What do I have to say in order for it to be true? I've also was blessed to have a father who lived the idea. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to follow any rules. Okay. When he was a cop, that meant sometimes parking in the you know, fire lane and he goes into a store, which is like <laughs> one side of it. But there was also the retiring from the police and becoming an entrepreneur and like just starting his own businesses and, and just, you know, I have an idea. I'm going to do it, you know? And so, so there was both being honest with myself and then also this idea that um, there's nothing that I have to do. I'm not, I'm not responsible to the world to do anything in particular. I'm free. And so the combination of like freedom and honesty, I think at the core are what really drive my uh, self-creation. Cause I'm always like, I, one of the things I've been journaling lately, just to a way of presencing myself to this, I come up with new ways to stay present to similar ideas as I am always ready and willing to die to any thought about who I am or what the world is. Mm. It's like, so it's like that if, cause I have to be honest. doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what's working for me. It worked really well for me for 40 years to not cook and to have the idea that's just not my thing cooking. But I had to get honest recently because I have a wife who would love me to cook for her. 
And after 10 years, you know, we've got another baby coming. It's like, mm, it, do, it is true, but it might, there might be a deeper truth. So I had to challenge, even the things that are working well, I had to challenge them. And now I've discovered if I was being dishonest, it was functional that I don't cook and it works for me. But beneath that was, oh, the kitchen's a place where I might get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, that means I'm not lovable. So I want to stay out of there and build up a whole way of seeing myself and being that avoids that situation. Now I can see that and I'm leaning in, I'm growing and learning to cook. Um, but it's through like this always willing to challenge myself to find like something that's more true for myself. Mm. So that's kind of the engine beneath the surface that's kind of drives my, my self creation is I guess what we could say a real simple, the thing that drives my self creation is doubting the self doubting mm. who I think I am, like not believing in it, no matter what, even the things that I identify with and feel good. It felt really good to be like, I don't cook, you know, it just, but you know, there's something always more, more true. Yeah. Sometimes we've got to kill our darlings, haven't we? Um, yeah. I think it's, it's often, I, I used to have these things I used to say, I'm not like, cause there's some sort of, I don't know, cachet to them like it made me sorry he's that guy he doesn't do that kind of thing and um, you think it says something cool or sort of edgy about yourself and again it plays its role for a while until it doesn't and then mm. then you're just you just become a dick basically because you're blocking yourself and it <laughs> yeah. becomes a barrier for the people you love you can't serve from that mm -hmm. place i've probably come to cooking a bit a little, a little earlier than you but it, i tell you it gets easier it totally gets easier yeah. I w my mum said, if you can read, you can cook. I That's think cool. I may have disproven it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cool. So when you have, you have one-to-one -one clients and you have group coaching, is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, so when you coach people one-to-one, -one, let's just say, what's the common thing that presents itself? Is there a common theme? Maybe masquerading in different ways, but is there a core thing yeah. that you tend to see? Yeah, you know, it's so funny that uh, too, what those, there's two themes and it's so funny what they are because when I first got into coaching, I hired a coach named Judy Mae Murphy. She's just a wonderful woman, so insightful, just has been working on herself for so long and she's, she's very intuitive and powerful. And um, we had like three 20-minute sessions for like three grand or something. It was like wow. really like rapid fire <laughs> coaching. And she listened to me for like five or 10 minutes. And she was like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go get a room at this hotel, book it for this date. And then you're going to do an event called the ultimate love and money persuasion day. Cause at the time I was doing persuasion, she was like love and money. And I was like, okay. And now, so I did that. And that was like the beginning of something. It was a struggle to get it together. It was like out of nowhere, but I made it happen. But anyway, looking back 10 years, I haven't like been marketing myself as love and money, but most of the conversations that I've been in over the last 10 years are how can I have more love in my life, whether it's in, in an existing relationship or to create a relationship or just having a loving, more loving way of being in, in all relationships or how can I make more money? And so those are the two things that pretty much, I would say eight or nine out of 10 times show up. Sometimes it's in, in a divorce situation, sometimes in, a, in wanting to meet somebody, sometimes in a marriage, sometimes in a business partnership, but human relationships, more love, parenting, more love. And then other times it's, how can I make more money? How can I make more money through? And then the way that I approach both of those things is not to like, here's what you do out there. Sometimes we go there, but it's, we go right back into how am I seeing the world? How am I seeing myself that's creating who I'm being? that's creating my feeling about that situation, that's creating my actions and behaviors, that's creating that actual outcome in the world. But those are the, the material concepts are love and relationships and money in the bank. That's really interesting. And I, I love the honesty because, you know, money I find is that sticky subject. A lot of coaches, like mm. they want to charge high fees, fine, nothing wrong in that. Mm. But then they get this kind of like moral, what they consider moral resistance. So I want to serve yeah. everyone and yet I can't charge that. And, um, mm -hmm. and yet you look at some of the most impactful coaches in the world that by reputation, I mean, classic example is the guy I know you've coached with Steve Hardison, probably one of the most expensive yet. Yeah. Damn my wall. 
can barely see, but that's a picture of him. Is there. it? Are the, is this yeah. your wall of fame or your wall of mentors? It's just, yeah, those are people that I admire, who I look up to that, um, you know, that have aspects of them that I aspire to in my own self. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I, I say I only know about him through reputation, but wow, that's, isn't that the way to be known, if, if anything? Yeah. So I say with money and helping, because this comes up a lot when I speak to other coaches as well and other people in people-based services, you know, what's your take on like morality and money and how did you ever have a block with, I want to charge this amount, but I feel mm. it makes me feel icky. What, what's yeah. going on there? Uh, no, not icky. Okay. But, has, but, but fear that I wasn't worth it. I had that. And so I think those two things are different. And so let's talk about both of them. Okay, cool. The, the, the icky, I would say, is um, something that people should trust. Like there's some sense about a way of being in society that's not in service of the whole. And so if you have the feeling that charging high fees is icky, that's like that's that feeling that this wouldn't be healthy in society for me to be doing this. And I, and I think it's like it's very, it it's perfect, makes perfect sense that that's wisdom at work. Because it's like, if you're like, I'm going to go sell potatoes at a really high fee, would that be good for people? Would that be good for society to be like, it's a potato, but it's a high-priced potato? I mean, it's just the idea. The idea, I want to charge people something high. It, it's like, the, it feels uncomfortable because it's fucked up. <laughs> I, love right? the, I love the potato analogy, and it, it resonates, yeah. These are, these are potatoes just like those. These just cost more. It's like, what the fuck? Of course that doesn't feel right. Of course it's gross. And so, but when people see this fee is, is, is a larger number than that fee, they think that's a higher fee. So what I want to do is charge higher fees. Mm. But, it's, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a lower fee. And maybe that's why that person's getting paid it more than you're getting paid your fee. That's a smaller number. And so when I look at my fees, I have a relationship to them that they're peanuts. They are low fees. When I had the, the idea that they were high fees, it didn't work too well. Same number. Actually, I had fees that were smaller numbers that I saw as high, and they didn't work too well. Now my fees are larger numbers that I see as low, and it works better. And so why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. I've probably grown as a coach. I can deliver more value in a short amount of time. That's an increase in power. But then there's also my relationship to the fee. Like I'm not going out into the world saying, I want you to pay a high price for what I do. It's like, fuck. No, I want you to pay a low price for what I do. And so that's, that's what we want in society. We want people to come from a place where they're contributing more than they're asking for. And so I'm a stand for being honest in that with myself. Mm. And if, you know, if, I, if I felt that I could deliver more value and, still, and raise my fee and it still be low, then I would raise them. Right now they're where they need to be for me to feel that they're low and I'm delivering more value than that, than that is financially. So there's wisdom in the ickiness. The other side of it is like, oh my gosh, I feel uncomfortable, afraid to say that because I'm afraid I'm not worth that, right? So you've got two options there. Lower the fee to what you feel you're worth or bring up what you feel you're worth. And so, you know, I like the second one because the more I bring the fee up, the more money comes in, the more we get to do here. Uh, and so there's wisdom in that too. It's like the body's not broken. Right. It's just like there's a, it's letting you know what's going on inside. So it's not like, oh, I should feel the fear and do it anyway. It's like, fuck that. Fucking millions of years for this thing to develop. And you're just like going to ignore it and freaking barrel through it. You know, I don't, I, just to me, there's, there's a lot of wisdom and fear, but we just want to be more nuanced with it. It doesn't mean just put my hands in my pockets and go home. I'm not going to be a coach, I guess. I don't mm. feel, it's like, no, no. But how do we how do we change? who this person is that we think we are so that we actually feel good about it. So are you coming from a place just touching on that of we remove the idea of feeling the fear and just going through it rather we work on deconstructing the fear. So it's no longer there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's, that's never the case, but like feel the fear and do it anyway is, is never useful. Maybe it is courage has a place too, but I'm much more interested in, you know, the dissolution of fear and fearlessness that comes through seeing through the illusion, the ideas that create the fear in the first place. Uh, it just makes life easier, right? I don't have to like, just be like on this fucking 
cycle of adrenaline all the time to to be able to to create i mean that's not going to be good for you <laughs> otherwise anyway you know <laughs> right. just I, i'm just going to dump as much adrenaline and cortisol yeah. into my body each day as i can and that will mm. play out well i'm sure so we touched upon like that being a bit of a myth or not necessarily a myth but it's something that needs nuance and its application are there any other common sort of what i say myths that you feel are out there in sort of coaching and self-development myths i mean the thing is i love the word myth i used to use it as a disparaging term years ago when i was like coming out of my youth as a catholic and then um trying to say that things that aren't true and don't have any value is a myth mm-hmm. but then through the work of joseph campbell i fell in love with mythology um and, and ritual which is the enactment of mythology and so um yeah there's myths everywhere but i my sense is that you're asking something a different question are there like are you asking are there non-useful ways of common ways of thinking that limit people in the coaching world yeah, I think that's right. I absolutely understand what you mean by myth in terms of sort of archetypal myth, hero's journey type stories. And that by myth, I say something that is in common parlance, but mm. like fear the fear, fear the fear and do it anyway. Fear, but, yeah, fear the fear, yeah. But, that, but actually, on the whole, is counterproductive. Do you think there's any mm. areas that, in coaching that have developed over the last... Well, one of the things that I end up... I end up with a lot of clients that have been students of the three principles... Um, because they really connect with the, the spiritual freedom and the groundedness that it produces, but they find themselves incapable of producing material results in the world without feeling like they're being drawn out of the insight that the three principles provides. Um, and I love the three principles. I've studied loads of books with it. I've been in plenty of conversations with Steve three principles practitioners, my business managers trained in the three principles. Um, but the difference between what the three principles does and what I do is the three principles offers an answer. It's the, in the sense of this is the truth. They talk about gravity when it's, it's just true. And once you realize it, then everything's better. Um, and so for me, it's not the truth. It's a perspective just like mm-hmm. everything. And it's very liberating. It's one of the most modern liberating perspectives that I've come across. Um, but the thing is, once we turn that perspective into dogma, it goes from serving us to us serving it. And so all, um, it's a, we could even say it's a myth. It's a very functional myth in a lot of ways. But the, the moment you turn a myth into a dogma, you collapse its power. Joseph Campbell talks about this. He talks about how, you know, historically before the, the, um, the church and science went head to head, there was a capacity in the world to live on two planes, the mythic plane and the literal plane. And they operated in parallel. And we had our mythology that was about our internal experience and it danced with the world. But we also knew that like, if we jump off a cliff, we're gonna die, right? Fire's hot. It's like, you know, and so there was, we could hold both, but then science and religion were like, they got, which one's the truth? And there's two planes collapsed into one. And so it's like, if you find a mythology like the three principles that works and it's like, now you got to fight for it. It's like, then it starts to be limiting for you. And so one of the things that I help people with a lot is to see how they can actually maintain the perspective of the principles, but also access what appears to be counter truths so that they can actually be very, very, be very functional in the world. So what I help people to do is see they can, they can maintain the freedom in seeing how thought is illusory and it's just made up and it's just happening while at the same time, which might seem like it's contrary, but not hold the opposite truth that thought is very real and you can wield it and you can bring conscious intentionality to it. And you can do that as, as a way of producing form in the world really powerfully and making a difference. And so I love the dance with things that often seem completely contradictory. And when people first are in conversations with me, oftentimes they're like, what the fuck? You know, like you just said this last week. Now you're saying this. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. But, you know, like there's a reason the yin yang isn't just two halves, like half moons. They're two things melting into each other. And I have like two trees roots, like just like it's integration of the two. And that happens through going back and forth and back and forth. And eventually you see that things that if we can stand on this truth and then stand on the contrary truth and both feel true, eventually you start to transcend to experience where this isn't contradiction, it's paradox. Two things that seem to be contradictory but they're not they're both true and to me that's where the power is so 
that was a longer, long question, but that's a place where I see that happening. No, yeah. I, I love that. I often talk about the, the, the battery principle. You have the negative, you know, yeah, and then positive. They can't stand on their own. The energy only flows with both being there. And yes. it's the, the nuances, you, you know, it's not the white and the black, it's the gradations of gray that lead into them. That mm. we, and I think that's the danger. I think I see like in so, some coaches as humans, I think we love certainty. So absolutism, mm -hmm. it's definitely this or it's this, but it can't be both or a mixture. And I think that gives us certainty in the short term. And then we realize it just doesn't work. We have to start leaning in and then go, Oh, yes. maybe this week, this moment, I need to lean back more and that flexibility and understanding. Mm -hmm. It's not about necessarily sticking to one thing or the other. It's about being able to be flowing between both. Mm -hmm. And I, I totally see that. Um, mm. Especially with coaching, I think you think, well, I've got to have a product to sell. What, what is my mm -hmm. stance? And it's like, well, mm -hmm. maybe no stance is my stance and that's mm -hmm. my power. Yeah. Uh, but how the hell you market that? I don't know. Or equally how clients will read that because uh, I've always struggled with that. I say I don't have my ways. Cool. I don't have a way, you know? I've yeah, I think the question how you market it presents a problem. Um, but if you ask a different question is how do I be that that's, that's more approachable. Mm. You know, while you were talking, I was thinking a very similar idea, which is like, I actually, I believe that people want certainty and I get a lot of my certainty in that I am certain in my uncertainty. Mm. And that might just sound like words, but if you actually stay with it, like I'm absolutely certain that I'm uncertain. And so my experience is certainty. My relationship to the realization of my uncertainty is certainty. So I actually have groundedness in that, which is like saying, like, I'm a stand, but I have no stance. So I am standing. I just happen to be standing for I have no stance. And so when a person experiences you, they experience your being, not the no stance, but the, the stance you have for no stance. The deepest being is what a person experiences. And so I think that when you have a stance that you're no stance, that's actually much more powerful than just having no stance because you haven't got one. Right. Mm. Like, but if you ha don't have one because you stand for not having it, a person feels that that's marketing as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Right? And how do you turn that into a marketing message? Well, that's the journey I've been on in the last couple of years. One of my clients, Gil Naveau, um, that I worked with for a year and a half is an incredible creative branding guy. He's got a company called Superbrand, And he, after working with me, I hired him and he's helping me to now, he's, over the last year or so, helped me to put language to these things that are very nuanced and paradoxical and it's a journey and it's a challenge, but it's a lot easier now than it would have been 10 years ago because I live that and be that. And so I can be it and he can be coached by me. And then we can start to like play with language and see how can we use language in a way that starts to at least create some intrigue around that possibility. I put out content. I think you probably know four or five times a week mm. and I intentionally consciously put out things that are seemingly contradictory so if somebody sees one of my videos they're not necessarily going to get that both and experience but if they on a monday they see a video that say you create everything and on a tuesday they see a video that you are being created it's like what the fuck which one is it and so i'm i'm just trying to dance on both sides with people to help them the through line over time is to get the essence of it i love that and i think i think it's over, I think some things are instantly marketable and things take other times, as you said, yeah. you become the market. So it's not necessarily the words on a website. They, yeah, again, I suppose we're coming full circle. They point to like little signposts, but they're not it. And they need to experience, mm. you know, there's only some things we can, I think, conceptually understand rather than the experience of something. And that's mm. speaking to us. And I mm -hmm. think, I think I've always come to the thing, but now that's not, conceptualized coaching let's just see mm -hmm. the experience and see if that's for you and i think that yeah. that works when you have a very nuanced and subtle hand to what you do and i think mm. that's certainly what attracts me to why i watch all your videos and read your stuff you. is, is that's it's that subtlety and i always when i know someone's contradictory and i know that they know they're being contradictory i know mm. the game they not the game is the wrong word but i know where they're coming from because there's a is that paradox thing again. And I think mm -hmm. we're losing nuance and subtlety in the world. I think mm -hmm. we're starting to see it's the echo chamber, right? The echo chamber. I'm th we're seeing partisan beliefs. You're either mm -hmm. this 
if you believe this, you also must believe that, otherwise you can't be in this group. So it's this identity politics. And I do wonder this is part of the problem we're starting to see in the world of you can't believe that and also believe this. You've yeah. got to do both. And so the real freedom is not believing and believing. Absolutely. So it doesn't mean not believing. The mm. freedom is in not ap- believing absolutely and believing, not believing absolutely in anything you believe, not believing absolutely in who you think you are, which, you know, that idea, it's like, I'm always willing to doubt who I am. You know, I have this, I have one of the, the London tube t-shirts, mind the gap. Yeah. And it's like, it reminds me to mind the gap of that, of doubt, right? Like the doubt that we have and things. And it's like, mind it. It doesn't mean that you don't take a step, but you pay attention to it and you, and you, you engage with it. I also have another a shirt with a picture of Nietzsche and the Nike swoosh. And it says, just doubt it. Uh, <laughs> I like that. It's all about doubting reality and stuff. So, yeah. I think that's a trope that we get in the self-help world. Never, don't doubt yourself. Well, actually, a little mm. bit of doubt is quite useful. So am mm-hmm. I in alignment? Is what I'm saying what I really feel? Mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah, again, nuance. It's, it's both. The, yeah. Yeah. That's why I like the sign, mind the gap. It's not saying, don't cross the gap. I mean, it's also not saying, ignore the gap, forget about it. It's like, be mindful of this. And so it's like, be mindful of doubt. Mind it. Right? Be present with it and, and wield it when it's useful and, and don't wield it or don't give into it or engage in it when it's not. So it's, it's always both. Hmm. How much do you think self-awareness plays into all this? Well, into what? Into, into creating the self? Yeah. Yeah. It Everything. Would be saying, yeah. <laughs> It'd be like, how much do you think being aware of your son is and being a parent? It's like, well, it's probably everything, right? There's nothing that I can do with my son that's not in my awareness. And there's nothing that I can do with myself that's not in my awareness. That doesn't mean there's nothing that I can experience, but if I'm talking about the self, the aspects that happen through the self, then it, it needs to be in my awareness to do something with it. Um, and it might just, actually oftentimes awareness is enough. That's one of my favorite things. And I got a lot of this through the work of Krishnamurti, the, mm. the Indian philosopher, um, that just simply being aware and, and through the three principles too, just simply being aware of self, being aware of conflict inside you, being aware of thought, just actually witnessing it and being aware can allow it to dissolve and depotentiate and relax and quiet down and sort itself out and become more coherent and, and more effective. And I think, uh, and so sometimes awareness is not just everything in the sense that it's the first thing or the foundation, but sometimes it's literally everything in that it, can bring you to the completion of whatever outcome you have just by itself. Yeah. I think when you notice certain things, just by noticing, you can transcend them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. Now you've got your coaching school. What does that, what does that involve? Who- so I've got a few things. I've got my partnerships, which is my private clients. Mm-hmm. And those are people I would meet with most of the time every week. If I've worked with them for a while, we meet less frequently. Um, but, uh, and, we're in conversation and we create new ways of seeing and being that move their whole world. I say, give me the lever of your mind and I will move your world. Is that, a bit of, is that Archimedes? Yeah. He didn't say mind. He said, give no. me the lever yeah. long enough and I'll yeah. move the world. But like <laughs> when I read that, it just hit me. Like if a person is willing to be in conversation with me mm. and they'll actually receive me, meaning they're not going to have a bunch of ideas about who I am that get in the way of us being, being together. And I can move their world because I can help them see things in ways that we create together. It's not like I'm imparting this wisdom on you. We'll create together and, and their whole world will shift because the depth There's a really high leverage point when you change the way a person conceptualizes themselves in reality, you know, just in the top of a company, the CEO is going to have the most impact on the company. Yeah. But inside that CEO's mind and how they see themselves in the world is going to have even way more impact on everything in their world, not just the company. So, um, that's where uh, I, that's what I do in my coaching conversations. And so mm. my private partnerships, that's the totality of it. Mm. But then I have creator circle where I take 11 clients plus myself. So we're 12 as a circle and, and we do two hours every week. And in those two hours, I am in one-to-one conversation with two people. So we do about 45 to 50 minutes each and the top and tail with a little bit of group dialogue. And so I do the same kind of work, but in a group context. And so I'm creating with, 
the people that I'm with, but then I'm also creating with the people who are present and listening. I teach them an idea called third level listening. Real short, first level is you're paying attention or not, it's listening. Second level is there's a deep, conscious, intentional presence that you can bring to listening where you're really hearing a person. There's an emptiness. And then the third level listening is where you realize there's nothing that I hear or receive from somebody that's not born of my preconceptions and expectations and intentions meeting the sensory input of who they're being and what they're saying. And so when we take the reins on our listening, we actually decide what I'm going to hear. We can create a lot of value. So we create everybody that's witnessing the two dialogues creates immense value from the conversation through using third level listening. Uh, and so that's a way for people to be in the coaching relationship and to be creating value just at a smaller investment. Um, so there's peanuts at my one-to-one -one and there's peanuts in my creative circle. <laughs> right? I see how we're linking this back to an early conversation. Yes. And, um, so those are the coaching situations, but then you mentioned the school. Yes. So, I, have, I may have conflated those. Sorry. JP that's right. I can just share the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still working on the naming scheme I have right now. So okay. the school, the school isn't my coaching. That's where I teach the creating perspective. Okay. It's content. Right. And so once a month I do a class for my coaching clients, that class is recorded and that's available to watch in creating school. So in the class, I teach an idea, we do some Q and a that's part of this content as an archive, there's loads of classes in there. They're 90 minutes each. So people that are maybe interested in my work that really want to dive in and learn through being with the content through the ideas a lot more deeply than the, you get in the five minute YouTube videos. They sign up for this it's a hundred bucks a month. They can watch these 90 minute classes. It's a new one posted every month. There's also a few different programs I've have in there. There's like a five part program called beyond affirmations where I go really deep into the process that I use to create the ideas of who I am that I'm with on a daily basis and a few other things. Just a bunch of stuff I've created for clients over the years. There's a section of audios on, uh, for coaches around creating clients and being a powerful coach. So creating school is a place to learn self-study. And it's a place where if you're interested in coaching with me, it's a good place to start because all the money that you put towards that is actually a credit towards the coaching if we're going to work together and create a circle or something. So um, that's the distinction. Well, that's nice. And do you have a particular type of client that you work with as a rule? Is it wide smorgasbord of clients so as a rule no but just naturally yes uh, and that person is they are an entrepreneurial in some way i don't have a rule that i don't work with people that have jobs but it just doesn't really happen you know and and so sole proprietor maybe they're working wealth management or insurance or they're an cons independent consultant or they own a company i've had clients that have small businesses even a medium-sized company hundreds of employees um, or, or I also have worked with a lot of coaches. I think just because I've been doing this work for a while and people see what I'm creating, that they want to both be coached by me, but also as a, in a kind of mentorship way or apprenticeship, they want to learn how I do what I do. And so a lot of people, especially in creator circle, are coaches because they want to not just be coached, but be present while I'm coaching others. Mm. And, um, so uh, in that sense, um, all different industries, but there's an independent kind of thing. People kind of see the world as their oyster. They can create whatever they want, at least believe that's possible. They might not feel they have total access to it yet. Um, people that like to make money and have great lives and have, have nice experiences because I'm happily here to live in the material world and create the most that I can in it. But the foundation for me is love, peace, well-being. I won't do anything that I don't enjoy to make a single dollar or, or to make a million dollars. If somebody offered me a job, doing something I don't want to do for a million dollars is I'd easily say, no, it doesn't matter if I've got a penny to my name. So, and that comes through my work. So it's like, I help people be happy and make money in that order. Yeah. I think, I think there's a massive need for that in the world as well. I think often people get it that the wrong way around, don't they? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, and that game can work because if they think their money will make them happy, it makes them very driven to get to, to that character. That's the problem is it works. To yeah, get to the money. It works yeah. so well. And then, they are, they're a heap at the end. And I don't know yeah. how I, an experience and what I've seen other people, it's easy to reverse engineer that. Let's get you realizing that you're happy already often, I think. Um, yeah. And then the money is less important and you can have more fun with that. You can do it in ways you can create it ways you enjoy rather than maybe exactly, smogging yeah. your guts out and putting yourself in an <laughs> early grave, killing your relationship, you know, being a poor father, uh, which or mother. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, 
I'm aware of your time now, JP. So I'm just going to finish up with two very quick fire questions. Uh, first of all, uh, if there's one book you could recommend to everyone, and I know that's way too expansive because mm. yeah, what one book would meet mm. everyone at a place they're at? But mm. is there a is there a book that's really had an impact I'm, on you? There's always so many books, but I guess I'm going to recommend the one that is present to me based on this from this conversation, which is the Tao Te Ching. Mm. And I would recommend starting with a Stephen Mitchell translation. It's a modern translation. He's the husband of Byron Katie. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very accessible language. I didn't know that. I d I've got that translation and I had no uh, idea the relationship to Byron Katie. It, I mean, let me show you actually something about that, which I think, this is my own idea, but hold on. My translation. Um, it's so interesting. So do you know the work of Byron Katie? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. So um, the, in, the, in the Tao, on the first chapter in the third section here, um, it says, free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. So my take on this is that is a perspective through the work of Byron Katie which is, and this may be total bullshit. I don't know if he wrote this before he met her, right? But like, I'm at least through a westernized idealization of the spiritual over the material, because it's free from desire, that bastard desire, for free from it. You realize, beautiful, the mystery. Caught, it's like, fuck, I'm stuck in desire, that bad thing, desire. You see only, only the manifestations that those little meaningless manifestations. But if you read other translations, all of these, these ways of describing it are much more neutral. It's like with desire, realize mystery without desire, see form. It's like, it's just the essence of it, but without that Western, you know, the, the non-material is the true God and the material is the evil. And so that, I mean, that's a way of saying, don't read this translation, but <laughs> For that little bias, it doesn't, it's the benefit of it, of how accessible it is and the wisdom in it is so much outweighs that little bias. And I would just say that once you've read it, if you're really into it, then find some other translations and start to compare. But overall, it's great. There's a nice um, book by a, a British coach who's very, I think, very under the radar. And I only came across him by sheer chance. This guy called Charles Davis. Mm. And he, he rewrote in his own language the same book on his way to work each day. Oh, wow. So cool. he read it and then re uh, and it's on, I, I can't remember the, he hasn't called it the same title, but I'll send you the link and it's, it's peanuts on Amazon, right? To buy, cool. but it's just really, it's like my coaching fees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even, even more peanuts than that. If, if possible, if possible. Uh, yeah. but it, it's, it's really interesting. I actually quite like the translations of different takings on it. And yeah. he's, he's, you know, he's writing, he writes a lot of really interesting articles on, on medium. Um, and, and wonderful poetry, but he, his translation of that is wonderful. And it doesn't, add or subtract from other translations it's just i love that yeah. constant and nuanced interpretation and i think maybe that's what keeps that text alive yeah i think so as well i think just having different for me different translations of things always adds i'm doing a tarot card course right now and i'm using three different decks at the same time because it's like the truth's not in one deck the, the truth is to be created through what i see and so it's like juxtaposing these and it's like something will emerge and I'll come in contact with that. So I love putting things, you know, just like this, just like the Tao, you know, it's like, mm. so I'm going to put this against another version and it's going to be a yin and a yang to them. So awesome. that's interesting. Just touch upon. So why are you just out of interest? What is it the tarot that holds interest for you? So the, the, the person who's leading the course is a guy named Luke Germain. Um, and it's open to the public. You can find uh, Luke Germay Real Magic on Facebook and can join the group in the course. Um, uh, and so I studied his work years ago as a performing mentalist, mm -hmm. and then, which is like entertainment, psychological magic, right? Um, but what I like about him is he both gets that magic can be a trick and it create an experience in somebody, and magic can also be real in the sense of like, 
how we use it to create our experience of reality that actually adapts our behaviors and our actions that adapts the results that we get. It's like uh, it's, magic's both real and not real. And so for him, and what I resonate with is tarot is both real and not real. And so let's use it in a way that it can help us to grow. And it's not about telling the future. It's about creating the future, right? So you could say it is telling the future in the sense of generating the future, but it's not um, like I have some knowledge by looking at these cards that I have some knowledge about the future. And it's not like this card was, I don't believe that a card, you know, there's some like God that's deciding this card gets pulled. It's random, but that randomness is part of nature. And then I use my neurology and patterns and I meet these images that are archetypal from hundreds of years to generate insight when I'm with you and it's like a triangulation between this archetypal power and my consciousness. Uh, okay, yeah. Now We're that creating. makes yeah, I I love that because I, I wondered the reason I asked that question I was wondering is what because obviously tarot is used in quite a few different ways. I'm I'm yes. no mean an expert in any way, shape or form. But I I wondered knowing you i knew there'd be something interesting behind yeah. that and so that that's really interesting uh, it's a developmental and, tool too by the way i didn't know this but like the the first 22 cards are you can see them as a developmental path mm. as, as as a person as a psyche on a spiritual path and so in that sense it's like you know there's a fool that goes on a journey and each of these other cards are an aspect of development you have the magician and the high priestess and they all are aspects of a person who can be mm. a quite powerful magician and creator in the world so yeah, I'm learning a few different things from it. That's interesting. It always circles back to Campbell's, you know. Yeah, for me. It, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Joseph Campbell, yeah. And before we say goodbye, what if there was one message you could share with the entire world, put on a billboard somewhere or mm. have written in the sky, what would it be? It'd be, uh, let's see, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers is the same message. And he said, I like you just the way you are. And, and I think right now, more than ever, you are lovable exactly as you are, you know, with your biases, with the things you can't see, like all the places where you feel that you might need to feel ashamed or like not enough, you're totally lovable just as you are. Uh, and, and I think when that's important to me, because when I remember that, my heart's at peace and then I can love people. So, Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I don't think there's anything more perfect to finish this episode on than that. So thank you, uh, JP. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate You're it. You're so welcome. Thank you, Mark. This was really fun. No worries. And if anyone wants to find out more about JP's work, I'll make sure all the details are in the show notes. And uh, yes, once more, thank you very much, JP Morgan. All right. Much love. Bye for now. Thank you.